Welcome to In the Author's Voice. I'm Jeff Williams. This year marks the 50th anniversary of the assassination of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. After nearly five decades, we still have no real idea why Dr. King was killed. Author Steve Barry's new novel, The Bishop's Pawn, is the latest installment of his Cotton Malone series. It's a prequel of sorts. It tells the backstory of the beginning of the Magellan Billet and Cotton's association with that Special Justice Department unit. It also wraps that story in the historical intrigue of one of the most pivotal events of the 20th century. I recently talked with Barry about his new book. It is a story. It goes back 18 years to when Cotton was still a young lawyer, and he's... Uh... We find out how he became a Magellan Billet agent and why he became a Magellan Billet agent, and he gets wrapped up in something that's going to be very timely right now. It's it's uh, you know the death of Martin Luther King. This is the 50th anniversary of it, and I've kind of held the story to this year because I wanted to 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 do it at this at this time. It's, it was fun because it's also my first time at first person with Cotton. So the whole book is from Cotton's point of view, and I've never done that before. So him and I got very close in the writing of this novel. Was it a challenge to, to write the story only from from Cotton's perspective? Yes, quite a bit of a challenge because first person taxes your ability to plot. That's what it does because you've got to do everything from one head. The bad guy, the good guy, the motivations, the history, everything has to come through one head. And that's that's always challenging. It's very difficult to make that happen. And I've waited a long time to do this, I was told once, you need to write a million words before you write first person because it's so difficult. I've written around four million words, and it was still difficult. It seems, though, very, almost very fitting for the nature of this of this storyline and the types of, of decisions that f- face Cotton at kind of a pivotal point in, in his career as well. Yeah, I mean, everything, this is, this is the moment when Cotton is changing and, and evolving, and he's, he's young. It was fun because he's not experienced at this point, so he's, he's going to make a lot of rookie mistakes, and he does. And it was fun to put him in those situations and watch how he responds to those situations. And uh, it was um, it's somewhat like the Luke Daniels character that I've created, but you know, a little bit younger even and a little bit less experienced because Luke was a, an Army Ranger. Cotton was just a JAG lawyer. So he gets thrust into this uh, situation that he that he rises to and handles very well, which ultimately leads to a change in career. There is a lot to entertain conspiracy theorists. In this oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, because he, you know, Martin Luther King's assassination has never been adequately investigated. There's never been an impartial, unbiased, apolitical investigation of that assassination. Every one that's ever been done, the, the, the outcome was predetermined or was tainted in some way. And to this day, 50 years later, we have no idea why Martin Luther King was killed. Why was he killed? That's very important. We do not know why. This book deals with that question. The settings in your book always are a key component of the storyline. Um, maybe talk a little bit about the historical significance of some of the locations, especially uh, some of those in Florida where much, of, where much yeah. of the story plays out. Yeah, the whole book is a Florida travel log, actually. It uh, starts in the Dry Tortugas, goes up to Lake Okeechobee, over to West Palm Beach, up to Stewart, and then to Melbourne, and then to St. Augustine, over to Gainesville, down to Micanopy, and finally ends up at Orlando at Disney World. So it's a, it's a whole travel log of Florida. Uh, the Dry Tortugas was especially fun where the book take, starts. It's at Fort Jefferson, which is the largest masonry structure in North America. It just sits out there on the water. It's quite a, 
amazing to see. And uh, I visited it, and I knew this is where Cotton's Adventure would start. And, and then I just took him on this little travel log through Florida. So the reader's going to get a pretty good, uh, pretty good, uh, a lot of information on places in Florida that they may not have, uh, have ever heard of. The name of the book is Bishop's Pond, and, yes. and Bishop in in the storyline is uh, is a code name used by the the FBI for 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 Doctor King, and. Mm-hmm. and uh, Pawn refers to one of your one of your central characters in this. It in this does, story, and uh, I, that's a fictional character Fiction, that I, cre- yes, that's I, mm-hmm. I created him. A lot of the characters in the book are real, but uh, this one was particularly fictional. And it, uh, it it the the book deals with something that that occurred to me many years ago, and it came to me after listening to what has now been referred to as the mountaintop speech, which mm-hmm. is the last speech Martin Luther King gave the night before he died. And it's a phenomenal speech when you listen to it, and the wording of it is quite phenomenal. And it always got me thinking, and that's where really the the premise came from. Uh, This book has a shocking conclusion to it. It's one that the reader will not see coming. It's one that that should hopefully give give them a little food for thought. It also deals with the most corrupt organization ever created by the United States government, uh, the counterintelligence unit of the FBI, which which flourished from around 1957 to 1972, violated about every law that we possibly have on the books. And and we're going to expose all of that and take a look at it, and particularly their relationship with Martin Luther King, which is all real. It, it, it strikes me that um, in, in the game of chess, the movement of pawns tends to determine the direction of the game's yep. strategy, even though the pawn can be considered maybe one of the weakest pieces on the playing board. seems kind of an, an apt analogy for this story you've crafted. It, it does. It's exactly what it is, and it's the reason why I chose a, a chess move for that. Uh, the, uh, the pawns play, play out the whole game here, actually, and everything is determined by the pawns, and so that's why I use that particular chess move uh, as the code name for this operation, and it is. They're, they're, the symbolism was intentional. Talk just a little bit about one of the central characters is is, is Reverend Reverend Foster, who at the at the at the time uh, when King was assassinated, is part of the storyline, was one of his right hand men uh-huh. uh, in the in the movement. And but not unlike Dr. King himself, has a has a few flaws himself. He does. He's very flawed character, and I and he's an analogy and a kind of a combination of a lot of people that surrounded King at the time. Uh, King himself had a lot of problems. The last year of his life was particularly troublesome to him, which I doubt many readers are even aware of, of how difficult the last year of King's life was. Uh, and he had basically lost his influence. He was in depression. A lot of things were going wrong for him, and his nonviolence message was beginning to fade. A lot was changing there. And Benjamin Foster is an analogy for the other side of that coin, of of what was rising on the other side and what was com- coming up. And their relationship is interesting, and it and it and it breeds, you know, the climax of the novel. This is much more of a character-driven novel for me than the, than than before. Uh, first person commands that to some extent, so I, I enjoyed it, and I think the reader is going to find you know a very closeness to this story. What did you learn about Cotton Malone as you were writing this? Because as you say, he makes some, for better or worse, he makes a lot of very kind of pivotal decisions that then play out later on. And he does. And he, I learned uh, where he where he got his decisiveness from. You know, uh, that he's had for many books. Now we find out where it began, and he makes some pivotal decisions quickly. Uh, and 
rebounds nicely. He gets knocked down, but he gets back up a lot. Uh, I learned a lot about his resilience and how it started and where it came from and what was driving him. And so uh, this book is a you know is a, is a an extension of Cotton's character, something that I uh, have been wanting to do for a long time. I've been wanting to do the the flashback first story of of where he came from, and this is it. I know the as you do the, the research for these and and the and the historical a- accuracy of the of the backdrop that that is so much a part of 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 your works. Were you surprised by anything that that you've discovered in the process yeah, of doing the, the research? The total lack of what we know about the death of Martin Luther King. I mean, we there's so much contradiction, so much stuff out there, crazy wild theories. All kinds of things. I don't go into the area that, that James O'Reilly didn't kill him. In my opinion, James O'Reilly pulled the trigger. I don't. I don't think there's any question about that. The question is, how did he do it, and why did he do it? You know, how did he make it happen? Why did he do it? Uh, that, that's a more interesting question, and this novel raises that. Uh, there's so much out there contradictory on King's death, and it's just never been adequately investigated. Never been looked at. Congress looked at it twice. Both decisions were kind of made before they started. There was a civil trial in 1999, which was a farce. There's just never been anything uh, to take a good, hard look at it, and it's impossible now. All the evidence is gone, and everything's tainted up. And that might have been the whole purpose. That might have been the whole purpose of, of why it's all muddled up. But it's just odd to me that after 50 years, this great icon, we have no idea why he died. In the course of the novel, there is a, uh, a, a Cuban connection in the book is was that a foil on your part or is there some some link now, to Cuba? I just did it for a couple of reasons. One, it was close to the dry tortugas, which <laughs> you know, from a novelist standpoint, it was nearby, which made it work well. The recent opening up of Cuba, you know, where we've gotten back in there, you know, intrigued me, so I I tied it in, and I also needed a place for one of the characters to hide. And what better place to hide than Cuba? Because you know, we've had no relations with the country for you know. 50 years. So it's basically a, a place that they could go and be totally safe. And and that's one reason why, and that's the main reason why I chose it. It's just a perfect place to go where no one would ever find you. Uh, and, it, and it was just a way to kind of tie it in with something that's happening now with Cuba. You talk about the counterintelligence program. It obviously was, it did exist and, and, and has been has been documented to some some degree. And I know there's been a lot written about Hoover and and how he ran herd over, I guess just about everything within yep. his within his sight. Did you learn anything, or was there any gain any in, insight into into the FBI at the time in doing this? Well, I I I'd, I'd heard a lot about it. You know, you hear a lot about it, but I read quite a few books on the subject. I actually read the FBI's own files. There's books that have their actual files on there. Everything is there. I, I did around 300 sources on this and went through it and. What I was shocked about is, is is the complete lawlessness of it. I mean, today that would all be exposed, and those people would go to prison. But you know, this is in the days before twenty-four hour news, before all these things, uh, pre-Watergate. So we had a totally different thought process about government. We actually trusted our government more, feared our government more than post-Watergate. And Hoover flourished in this. Hoover should have gone to jail. I mean, he should have died in prison is where he should have been. I mean, he was a corrupt individual, just totally corrupt. And and he and he misused his power horrendously, and particularly toward Martin Luther King. He, he hated King. It was a personal hatred that he had of him. And the things that he did to King were just so reprehensible. 
Uh, and, you know, it, 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 I had heard about them, but I'd never read them in detail before. Now that I've read them, it was just so shocking that that went on. Today, it would have never happened. Today, it would have been a whole different experience. Uh, but, you know, in the days pre-Internet, you could get away with it, and, and he did. You you mentioned in the in the in the book and and in uh, in I believe in some of your uh, notes at the at the end that that Dr. King was not scheduled to, to speak that day and that his speech nope. uh, um, was pretty much an extemporaneous speech and yep. but the theme the, the the mortality theme as if as if he knew something it is it is fascinating when you listen to the entire speech not just the little excerpts that you've heard and seen but listen look at the whole thing. It's a speech about mortality, and he made every word up as he was saying it. He was he was not supposed to talk that night. He was sick. He had not prepared anything, and he basically spoke straight from the head. So when you're listening to it, you got to realize that it's all coming immediately from him. And yes, it does sound like a man who knows he's about to die. There's no question about it, and that's what got my imagination going. I think everyone loves a good a good conspiracy theory, and, and sometimes there is no explanation. Things just are because they are, but. He, is there someone out there who really knows the what and why of Dr. King's death? They're all they're all gone now. No, I, I, I would, I can't imagine there's anybody left alive that would know anything out there now. It's been so long. Um, I would say they're all gone. Ray died in '99, and of course he lied for 30 years. We have no idea, you know, anything of what he said was ever truthful or not. Anybody else who's there, they're all gone. Hoover's gone. All the people in the FBI are gone. No. The, the mystery will remain a mystery forever. We will never know exactly why Martin Luther King died. It certainly weaves a very thought-provoking tale on the on the 50th anniversary of... And that was my purpose, to get people thinking about it, to get people going at it. As I said, the book has a, a very shocking climax to it, one you, you should not see coming because I, I didn't telegraph it in any way. And so it kind of comes out of nowhere at you. And so I, uh, I hope it will get people to want to read more about it. That's author Steve Barry. His latest installment in the Cotton Malone series, The Bishop's Pawn, is on bookstands today from Minotaur Books. In the author's voice is an online feature of WSIU Radio, a listener-supported service of Southern Illinois University. I'm Jeff Williams.